Well, good morning, Restore Church. My name is Brad Marvin. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm actually not preaching today, but I am going to read the text that will be preached out of. Um, but we are starting a new series today. It's a little bit of a stretch. It's a little different for us, but we're excited about it. So uh, what we're doing, what we're beginning today, is a series where we are going through the whole Bible in seven weeks. So buckle up. Um, we're definitely not Uh, unrealistic in our expectation here at all, maybe a little bit. But we want to cover the Bible um, in in a way in which you understand it as one whole story. So often the Bible feels like it's broken up into different pieces, and it's hard to kind of grasp what what is the big message of the Scriptures. And so our attempt in this series um, is to give you kind of Act 1, Act 2, through 7, of the Bible. And so we're doing this with a couple other pastors in our area. We have a church planter in Dallas named Kendrick who's going to come in and preach one of the sermons. And then today we have Pastor Ben Conley from Salt and Light Church in Fort Worth, and they planted back in January. Um, But Ben actually, a longer time ago, helped us start Restore Church uh, through a different church. And so uh, we all get to tag team this together. It's going to be really fun. We're looking forward to it. It's already been a blast collaborating. Um, but that's where we're, we are. And today we're going to look at creation, which is kind of part one of the story in Genesis. And I'm going to read for us Genesis 1, through 31. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and he said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, Everything that has breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. This is the word of the Lord. As Ben comes up, I want to pray for you, Ben. Lord, we thank you for Ben, uh, who was just here a few weeks ago preaching, and he's back serving us again today. I pray that as we sit under the truth of your word as Ben communicates it, Lord, that we would be changed, that we would have a bigger and better understanding with this truth that you have spoken to us. You continue to speak to us through your word, and we are invited into this beautiful story in our own little stories, giving us purpose and giving our lives meaning. Lord, I pray that all of these things would begin to click through your spirit in our hearts. We would deeper our understanding of a good and loving God that is involved in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I don't need that. All right. Thank you, sisters and brothers. Good to be with you again. Um, I was honored to be here and kind of kick off summer with like seven of you because it was Memorial Day weekend and 
the few of us that were gathered, two or three, were here in Jesus' name. So, um, But we are going to be in Genesis 1 and 2 today, so if you have a Bible or an app, open up to that. We're going to spot check a few other verses other than the ones that Brad read. Uh, but as you pull up or open to Genesis 1, I want you to think about just kind of gut response. What is a story that you love? Just what's a story that you love? Everyone has a favorite movie, a favorite play, a favorite book, a favorite series of books. We all have some story that we love. Um, I brought with me today the first book that I remember loving, and it's called I Am a Bunny. Anybody read I'm a Bunny? This is an old, old tattered copy of a board book. Uh, this, is, this is the copy that my parents have now given to my own children uh, that I read. It's about a, a, a bunny named Nicholas. This is Nicholas right here. He lives in a hollow tree. And um, the story walks through just different things he does during seasons, and it ends in winter with him curling up in his hollow tree and dreaming about spring. And I don't remember this, but my parents tell me that I used to ask if they would please put me to bed in a hollow tree which they did not do because they didn't want to get arrested and that'd be bad. Um, but I used to pretend, apparently, that I was Nicholas, curled up in a hollow tree, dreaming about spring. Um, and then from there, um, I spent way too much time as a young boy uh, pretending to be Peter Pan. Um, then the boxcar children and uh, Hardy Boys and this kind of stuff. My fifth grade daughter's favorite story right now is called The Penderwicks. She likes to pretend that she's Sky. she just told me. Um, and, and I was just an imaginative kid and, and would put myself in every story and try to become some character. I, I would immerse myself in whatever story, whatever movie was my favorite. What about you? Did you do this? Do you do this, even as grown-ups? Yes, some, one of you is honest enough to say yes. Yeah, because I want to submit, like, as, whether we're kids uh, or, or whether we're adults, we, we all immerse ourselves in whatever story is the most important to us. We all, we all try to become something, some character in the story on some level, even if you pretend you don't. You do. Maybe, it, maybe it's no longer a fiction story, but maybe it is. Maybe you do try to become a fictional character. I don't think I'm Jason Bourne. You think you're Jason Bourne. Um, there's still some story that shapes our life. So, so for an example, I heard a quote this week that said, everything in the United States now falls under the umbrella of politics. We're not going to get into that, whether it's true or false, but we don't have to look very far to go, there's at least some credence to that. If that's true, then, then the overarching story of politics shapes every other aspect of life. Or if, if our story revolves around money, not having enough, wanting more, wanting to do more things with it, then, then that shapes our life. Some of our stories might revolve around our jobs, or pursuing our best life now, or having perfect children, or, or on and on and on. Whatever story is the most important to us, that story shapes our lives. Now, just like literature, some of the stories that shape our lives are fiction. Like, you probably won't win the lottery. You probably won't make the right investment and become the next Jeff Bezos and get to go to space next week. Like, it's probably, probably a fictional story if that's the one your hope is in. Others' stories that shape our life have elements of, of nonfiction in them. Like having perfect kids might be the story that shapes our life. There's an element of truth to that. Parents, grown-ups are, are, are called to train and disciple kids. But fiction, nonfiction, there's one story that is truer than any other story in all the world. 
And as Brad said, for the rest of July and August, Salt and Light and Fort Worth and Restore here in Arlington are going to kind of zoom out from our norm, and we're going to trace the themes of Scripture and give kind of an overview of the whole Bible, because we believe, and if you follow Jesus, you say, at least, you believe this too, we believe that this is the truest story in the whole world. Now, there's dangers in what we're doing this summer together. First, if you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, or you're doubting or questioning your faith, you might not believe that this story is true. And that's okay. And we want to be honest together with you and invite your honesty in that as well over the next few weeks. I would invite you to to at least kind of press in and hear these themes that we trace, because they might be different than the perspective of church or perspective of Christianity that you've had in the past. I invite you to, to perhaps see them in a new light. At least ask honest questions throughout it. If, you're, if you are a follower of Jesus, um, then you do believe the Bible is true. Or at least maybe sometimes, if we're really honest with ourselves, right? And so, same thing. Invite, we invite your questions as well. But the bigger tendency for followers of Jesus is kind of to, to, to check out. This is old news. I've read the Bible. I know some of the Bible. A bigger danger, though, is that for most of us, we're used to tackling the Bible in in what we're going to call little bits. So so we'll spend several weeks, our church does this, Restore does this, it's not a bad thing, but we'll spend several weeks in one book or in one theme, we'll zoom zoom very far in and try try to mine the depths of specific portions of Scripture. And as our teaching team, Brad and Kendrick and myself and a couple other folks from different churches, uh, started to plan out this, this teaching series this summer, um, one person made the comment that, that by doing that, it's good at times, but we can miss the forest for the trees. By missing the one unified story of the Scriptures, there's a danger in missing the true heart of God. There's a danger in misunderstanding the unified theme that draws us into the story of God throughout the whole Scripture. Two authors, Mike Goheen and Craig Bartholomew, go as far as to, to say this. This is a little bit of a lengthy quote, so, so stick with me. But they say, many of us have read the Bible as if it were merely a mosaic of little bits, theological bits, moral bits, historical bits, sermon bits, devotional bits. No hands raised, but, but is this true of us who read the Bible in little bits? But when we read the Bible in such a fragmented way, the authors say, we ignore its one divine author's intention to shape our lives through its story. All human communities live out of some story that provides context for understanding the meaning of history and gives shape and direction to our lives. Is that fair? Everybody lives out of some story. It's, all, it's what we've said so far today. If we allow the Bible to become fragmented, fragmented, it is in danger of becoming absorbed into whatever other story shapes our lives. And thus, it will cease to shape our lives as it should. So, so again, if, if politics is the overarching story, if money is the overarching story, if some dream for our children is the overarching story, then the, then the scriptures become absorbed into that story. They fit under the umbrella of that story, and they fail to shape our lives as they were intended. Idolatry, the authors continue, have twisted the dominant cultural story of the secular Western world. That's deeply philosophical, but again, we, we get it. Idolatry twisted the dominant cultural story of the world around us. And if, 
for those of us who follow Jesus, we allow that story, the story of the world around us, rather than the Bible, to become the foundation of our thoughts and actions, then our lives will manifest not the truths of Scripture, but the lies of our culture. Hence, they say, and the quote's almost over, the unity of Scripture is no minor matter. A fragmented Bible may actually produce theologically orthodox, which is to say we believe right things, theologically orthodox, morally upright, which is to say we live in a good way, theologically orthodox, morally upright, warmly pious, which is to say just religious people who are idol worshipers. A fragmented Bible may produce theologically orthodox, morally upright, warmly pious idol worshipers. I don't know about you, but theologically orthodox, morally upright, warmly pious idol worshipers does not sound like the person I want to be. But it might be a poignant way to describe many churchgoers in North Texas in 2021, or many people who try to follow Jesus across history and across the world. So here's the point before we dive into Genesis 1, as I'm trying to kind of set up our whole seven weeks together. If the Bible fits into some other story, if some other story is more true to us than the story of God, then we miss the heart of the Christian faith, and that's a big deal. So starting today, we're going to overview the Bible, but not just as theological bits or moral bits or historical bits or devotional bits, but we're going to overview the Bible as the truest story in the world, and thus the story that we fit into and everything else fits into. It's the one story that shapes our entire lives, that primarily shapes our entire lives. It's a big undertaking. We're not going verse by verse from Genesis to Revelation in seven weeks, but the story matters. God's story builds on itself, so as much as you can be here, dwell on these themes, ask God as we go through it to to shape your life around this truest story in the world. And I know Brad already prayed, but I'm going to ask God to shape our lives around the truest story in the world before we dive into Genesis 1. So God, would you do that? Would you do that today? Um, There's no way we can cover the depths of your scriptures in seven weeks or in 7,000 weeks. But God, would you invite us into themes? Would you invite us to see more of you, to know you deeper? And would you shape our lives accordingly? For your son's name and for your glory, amen. All right, truest story in the world. It starts, as you might expect, in Genesis 1, verse 1, which says, in the beginning, you know this? God created the heavens and the earth. Okay, and right there we find out who the story is about. This is a story about God. That's important to know. As in any other story, the main character matters most. Everything else in any story revolves around the main character. And and so through Genesis 1 and 2, we get to know this main character of the story. We get to know God. God is is a main character. God is personal and all-powerful. God creates everything that exists. We can't fathom what that means, but God creates everything that exists, and as He created it, He made it good and right and perfect. God, this main character, is the true ruler of the universe He created, and as a good ruler, He lovingly provides for everything in creation. 
So even if you don't follow Jesus, you may know this story, this pattern that's seen in Genesis 1. I'm going to read starting in verse 2. We're not going to read all of it, but starting in verse 2 of Genesis 1. God said, let there be light. Now, verse 2 actually says, the earth was without form and was void, and darkness hovered over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Then, verse 3, God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness, and he called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and there was evening and morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the other waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters above the expanse, and it was so, and he called the expanse heaven and there was evening, and there was morning the second day. And on and on Genesis 1 goes. On day 3, God makes lands and seas and vegetation. On day 4, He makes the sun and moon and stars. On day 5, the birds and the sea animals. Day 6, the land animals. And no matter what you believe about the timeline or the specific amount of hours or days or ages or whatever else, we can agree that, that creation is amazing. There's a reason we long to go to the beach and the mountains. It's not just because August is about to be stupid hot in Texas. Like we, we, we love to go there because creation draws us into something that's different from our lives. Creation is amazing. The precision with which God laid the earth's foundations, the, the intentionality and beauty in so many plants and animals and, and ecosystems. God created breathtaking colors and views, and vistas, and fragrances, and a symphony of sound. And it's important to see two things as we consider God's creation. It's important to see a lot of things, but for today, it's important to see two. The first is this. Every day of creation, God created things that were different from other things He created on that same day. So, He created light and dark. Light is not darkness. It's different than darkness. Land is not water. It's dangerous for land to try to become water. But in every day, whilst God created things that were different, at the end of each day, God looked at his creation and said that it was what? It was good. All of God's creation was good. All of God's creation worked in perfect harmony for God's purposes. All of it, the, even despite the differences in light and dark and sea and, and land and, and this kind of animal and that kind of animal, God, all of them, all of these different things that God created worked in perfect relationship and unity with the rest, even though they were not all the same. As their distinct functions worked together, God, the main character of the story, was glorified and lifted up. The point is that there's unity in diversity in creation, that there's beauty when different things come together and admit their need for each other. That's part of God's design. And so the same theme that we see for the first six days of creation is also true on, on the rest of day six, on the culmination of God's creation, which as Brad read a little bit ago, is, is humankind. People, 
Adam, Eve, you and I have a vital role to play in God's truest story of the world. And so let me read again the verses that Brad read, and then if we're okay with it, we're going to have a little bit of a conversation around them. So warm your vocal cords up. We're going to talk for a minute. All right, Genesis 1:26 again. Then God said, after making all the other things, then God said within himself, let us, Father, Son, and Spirit, make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the creeping things on all the earth and over all the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. To every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath of life, I've given every green plant for food. And it was so. And then God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it wasn't just good anymore, it was what? Very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. All right, I know the room might be a little bit awkward for this, so be bold. But let's talk for a minute. From these verses, or some of you read ahead, Genesis 1 and 2 this week, what do you know about how and why? What what does the scripture teach us about how and why God created man and woman? What do you see here? How did he create God? Or how did God create man and woman? Why did he create God? Why did God create man and woman? What do you see? Told you it'd be awkward. Someone's got to go first. To have dominion. Yeah. And that word means a lot of things today. If I can, if I can touch on that for just one second, to, to have dominion over something. In, in the original Genesis 1 context, meant to steward something, but to do so on God's behalf. Having dominion was to image forth God's image to the world, to tell the story of the main character. It meant displaying God's loving care to God's creation, and literally having dominion meant cultivating things. It wasn't like a domineering posture. It was, it was having a f- responsibility, but, but so that God's creation would thrive. That's not often how we think of dominion today. But thank you for starting us off. What, is there, what are a couple other things that you see about how and, and why God created man and woman? In God's own image. Yeah. All people are created in God's own image. That's distinct from the rest of creation. Anything else? Yeah, yeah, in Genesis 2, which we didn't read, God comes down and forms the, the man out of dust and takes the woman out of the man's rib. Again, whatever image is in your mind is probably less glorious than it was, but that's hard for us to fathom, right? There's this, this perfect imago day. We're in the image of God. God 
God provided everything Adam and Eve needs. That often gets missed as we focus on the creation part, but He says, I'm going to give you not only life and breath, I'm going to give you all the food you, you need. I'm going to nourish you. I'm going to give you everything that you need. There's a personal nature of this. The first breath that Adam exhaled, I heard someone say one time, was the breath that God had put into him. And, and so Genesis 1 and 2 shows us that people, then and now, are created by God. We are not the main characters, but we support the main character. We, we tell the story of God who is the main character. People, then and now, are, are like the rest of creation in that we are different from one another, but all of us were created good. And I want to submit that God is less glorified. This is one thing we see in Genesis 1 and 2. He's less glorified if we were all to try to be the same. If we all try to be one gender, one race or ethnicity, one worldview, one type of gifting, God would be less glorified because the, the, the myriad, unfathomable nature of God wouldn't be on display. So God is more glorified when all of our differences come together for His purposes in unity. And so man and woman were and are created in God's original design to glorify God, to enjoy creation, and to cooperate with God in God's mission, to display God to the world, to image forth God's image, and by our lives and our words and our actions to tell the very story of God. And so I want to pause, because again, we're not just tackling this in, in theological bits or historical bits. This is the story that shapes our lives. And so I want to pause and, and ask us to consider just for a moment, what elements of creation has God entrusted to you? Because God is still the creator of all things, right? What elements of creation has God entrusted to you? And what would it look like to cultivate that, that true meaning of dominion, what would it look like to, to cultivate whatever people or plot of land or time or whatever in a way that displays God's care for His creation and tells His story in whatever creation He's entrusted to you, no matter how big or how small? Like, to, to, to make it more tangible, what would it look like to make your home look a little bit more like the kingdom of God, to parent our kids a little bit more like the kingdom of God, to, to make our jobs or workplaces reflect a little bit more of the kingdom of God, to make our yards look a little bit more like Eden. I grew up on a farm. We raised sheep and, and cows and goats and horses. There's a difference in caring well for the, the creation that's entrusted to you and not. I now live on a little tiny plot of land about a mile down, outside of downtown Fort Worth, but my wife has cultivated our tiny little backyard into, into a beautiful garden. It's not nearly as big as the farm I grew up on, but there's beauty there. More than that, we, we, we ask the question, how can we bring our neighbors and our, our, our kids and, and their school into seeing a little bit more of God's image? How do we bring more peace and beauty and thriving with your spouse, with your roommate, at your office, at your apartment, even if it's hard to tell the story of God there, even if there are people there who are hard to love? The, these are the questions we ask if the story is going to shape our lives. 
Because again, the Bible's not just a collection of facts or bits. If this is the truest story in the world, it's the story that informs and forms all of our everyday actions and shapes our lives. We have a role to play. We don't just read it for five minutes and then shelve it as if it doesn't matter. So there's a, a couple other important notes in these first pages of God's story. The first is that God rested. That matters. Genesis 2, verse 1. The heavens and the earth were finished, and all the hosts within them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all of his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Now, God's rest did not mark the end of his relationship with his creation. Instead, it marked really the start of his personal relationship with his creation. The rest of Genesis 2, which some of you read coming into today, you see God entering the garden in the cool of the day and walking with Adam and Eve and, and, and discussing life and, and garden things and whatever else with them. And, and just they were dwelling in the very presence of God. Adam and Eve carried out God's work Today, we might say that they did what God did. They reflected God to the world. But Adam and Eve also rested and enjoyed God. They were just with God. That's hard for us today, isn't it? But as they imaged God's image into the world, can I say it like that? As they imaged God's image into the world, work is from God and is good and glorifies God. And also, as they imaged God's image into the world, rest, which is trusting God, over ourselves was also from God and good and glorifies God. Different things coming together for unity. The same is true for us today. Work and rest both matter. Our vocations and callings and also our trust of God over our ability to accomplish things matter. And then second, as a final note from the text today, God put two trees in the garden and he gave Adam and Eve a command regarding these two trees. So if you look down at Genesis 2, verse 9, you see that out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant for sight and good for food. And the tree of life was in the midst of the garden, as was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then skip down to verse 16 with me. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. Now these trees are going to matter as the truest story in the world unfolds next week. But the trees also matter for today. Because again, we see that Adam and Eve are not the main characters. They, they have dominion. They have, a, they have a role to play in the truest story of the world. But Adam and Eve, in and of themselves, are not the ultimate authority over their lives. Rather, Adam and Eve and every human since them, whether they believe it or not or live as if it's true or not, Adam and Eve were created by God to exist in perfect relationship with the rest of creation, with each other, and with God. They were also created to live under God's loving care and authority, just like you and me.
if they and we obey God, then God promises peace and enjoyment of life. And if they or we don't, then, quote, you will surely die. And on that fairly ominous note, we're going to leave the biblical text for today because we'll pick up the story in Act 2 next week. But I want to close with just a few implications because, again, this matters for our life. Here's the first implication of this first act of the story of God. Uh, We've said it before, but it's worth drawing out just overtly as we start to close. God is the main character then and now of history. God is the main character then and now of history. That matters as we ask what is going to shape our lives. We're not the main character of our lives. We're not the main character of this story. This is objectively true, whether you believe it or not, but if we're honest, it causes some of us to bristle. Because the idea that I'm not the main character of my life goes against the inherent self-centered nature that is within me and the inherent self-centered society that surrounds me. People's original relationship with God was one of worship, which isn't just singing. Thank you for leading us in singing. It was great. But it's not just singing. A life of worship is an entire life given to God more than any created thing. People's original relationship with God was one of respecting the authority of the one true king and and a life of cooperating with him on his mission. And so I want to ask a question. We'll post these questions every week uh, in your weekly email thingamajig, but but, but a question that comes out of that is, is to say, what does it mean for God to be the main character of your life? What does it actually mean? How would that change your your everyday postures and goals to see him as the greatest authority because he's the author and giver of that life? What would it mean to see yourself as his storyteller, as, as a supporting character? How would that change things? That leads to a second implication. The fact that you and I are created in God's image, I need you to hear me on this. The fact that you and I are created in God's image is the most glorious characteristic that any of us can claim. More than whatever level of intelligence, more than whatever looks you have, more than whatever strength, more than whatever success, the main character of the story, God in all of his power and goodness and sovereignty and wisdom, invites you into perfect relationship with him and invites you into a vital role in his story. More than anything else in creation, God gave you his very image. Hmm. And and so a question that comes out of that is to say, why does it matter that you're created? but created in the image of God, to image God to the world around us. Why does it matter that that we are created, but created in God's image to bring that image to our households and our works and our neighborhoods? 
And, and do you believe that that is the defining characteristic of your life? Or when you think of what you value most about yourself, are there thousands of other things that come to mind first? Third and finally, don't miss this. The first pages of the Bible show us, <laughs> they show us what creation was intended to be like. There's beauty there. There's harmony there. There's joy and there's pleasure. There's no pain. There's no evil. There's no division. There's no death. How can you steward whatever creation God gave you for God and cultivate finding some sort of way to give a glimpse of that kind of life, restoring the earth, restoring relationships, trying to make the world that God has entrusted you with, the little bit of the world God's entrusted you with, look a little bit more like the kingdom of heaven. One author said that today we think that normal, that it's normal to face suffering and disappointment. Is that fair? We think it's normal to face suffering and disappointment. We just go, well, stuff happens. That's just the way it is. Genesis 1 and 2 church says no. It's not normal. It may be our normal, but it is not the way that God intended. We don't have a concept. We can't imagine the goodness of original creation. Everything is skewed. Our relationship with the physical world is skewed. There's death. There's 120-degree heat in Canada and freezing in Texas in February and tornadoes in the Northeast. Like, that doesn't happen. There's death. There's fires. There's COVID. Relationship with the physical world is skewed. Relationship with people are skewed. Relationships with people are skewed. We've all been created in the image of God and for God's glory and for unity and bringing people together, and yet who hasn't seen some sort of broken relationship and division? Our relationship with God is skewed. Suffice to say today, it's not like it was when Adam and Eve walked with God in the garden. But church, if God is the main character and this story is the truest story in the world, then everything in the created world, people, non-human creation, time, work, rest, everything, was created to be very good and in perfect relationship as God originally intended. And everything in the created world, people, non-human creation, time, work, rest, and everything, will one day be restored to that very goodness and to that perfect relationship and unity. And one day we will understand and see and experience God's definition of normal. That's promised it will happen one day and then it'll be like that forever. And until that day, we yearn for life to be a little bit more like God intended. We long for the future restoration to a world that looks like it did in, you know, way in the past in Genesis 1 and 2. And we try to give a glimpse of God's original def definition of normal in small or big ways in our relationships with God, in our relationships with people, in our relationships with non-human creation, in our relationships with work, in our view of time, and in everything else. 
this is what it looks like to tell the story of God. This is what it looks like to image forth God's image in our everyday places, our everyday relationships, our everyday lives. And so as we close, we're going to turn to communion because that hope, the, the future return to God's original state, that's, that's one aspect that followers of Jesus celebrate and declare when we take communion. We're declaring our hope in something, something better than what's around us right now. The other aspect that we celebrate and declare invites us to fast forward in this story to the only human on earth who did live in perfect relationship with God, who did walk with God from eternity past and will walk with God perfectly in eternity future. Jesus Christ, our Lord, alone did what Adam and Eve could not. Jesus Christ alone did perfectly image God to the world, even as that world despised and rejected him. And then our Lord Jesus, after living the perfect life that God intended for Adam and Eve and all people until we wrecked it, see that next week? The Lord Jesus died in order to restore us to that God. And then he rose to usher in the very kingdom of God here on earth for us to live out this role. And our Lord Jesus will return to restore everything on earth to God's original definition of normal and to reign over creation in its eternal form forever. This is what we proclaim, Restore Church. This is what we yearn for as we celebrate the climax of the truest story in the world, Jesus' death and resurrection, his broken body, his shed blood, symbolized by the bread and the wine as you come forward for communion today. Amen? So, Brad and Gavin will be up here. And for anyone who is a follower of Jesus, who believes, at least on some level, in this truest story in the world and believes that your life is, is shaped around Jesus, you're welcome to come forward and get the, the bread and the wine, the, the styrofoam thing and the, the juice in, in COVID moment today. Um, for kids who haven't been baptized yet, um, there's Hershey Kisses up here as well. But let's continue to worship and celebrate as we declare. This is one thing we do in communion is to declare the truth that we believe. And so in this act, we're declaring to God and to each other that we believe this story to be true and that it culminates in the broken body and shed blood of Jesus. Come to the table.